Thank you, Johnny, for the selection of those songs. Very good and fitting with the message we'll be looking at tonight. Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to be continuing our exposition of this little wonderful epistle, packed full of theology, as the Apostle Paul gives to this young church. And tonight we're going to conclude the section that we've really taken three weeks on. This will be the third week. And that's chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 12, which really formed a unit, if you will, and really Paul's main purpose of writing. And in these verses, we're going to see that God makes all things right. That divine recompense that he spoke of in chapter 1, that we learned of in chapter 1, will be fully executed unto the glory of God. Now, just very briefly, by way of review, uh, Paul writes in verse 1, trying to correct their misunderstanding that some had thought that the day of the Lord had actually already come. And Paul says, no, there's a couple things that need to happen first. The great apostasy, the great falling away from the faith must happen first. And then also, that would pave the way for the manifestation of Antichrist. This one that would come and be lifted up and would take his seat and declare himself to be God and to demand worship. And so last week we looked at verses 4 through 7. The title of the message was The Nature and the Boast of Antichrist. Because isn't it a boast? Let's read verse 4 again. Speaking of this lawless one, it says, Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. Complete, utter pride and arrogance is what this one will be will be known as, as he exalts himself and lifts himself up and demands worship from every so-called God. He will not even allow some to worship idols or the pagans or all of them. He wants all worship to himself. Now last week also I mentioned that it's, it's obvious that in this letter and in this chapter in particular, the Apostle Paul has the prophecy written by Daniel in his mind. And we're not going to take the time to go back to look at those verses. Get the MP3 if you missed the last couple weeks, if you like. Uh, but it, it does fit together. There's definite parallels here. So I think Paul definitely has that in mind. I think this bears mentioning, we, we looked at two main interpretive challenges last week. And that is, what does it mean when he says he takes his seat in the temple of God? We've heard lots of speculation. There's lots of prophecy seminars and prophecy books and all of these things being written that will tell you probably ten different things of what that might mean. Now, I think the teaching of the Bible, particularly under the New Covenant, we're not commanded to worship in any specific temple or any specific place. John chapter 4 we looked at. Those who worship the Lord must worship in what? Spirit and in truth. So we know... Paul is not talking about some physical temple here. We also know that from Paul, the Apostle Paul's very use of this word. He uses it seven times outside of 2 Thessalonians. And every single time the Apostle Paul uses this word temple, it refers to the church or Christ or the Holy Spirit inside of the believer. Hence, when he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, speaking of the, the, the people of God. So from Paul's own use of this word, 
He, he, it doesn't mean some physical temple. Now, the word is translated as a physical temple, John 2 and other places in the Gospels, but I don't think that's what's being spoken of here. So that was the first interpretive challenge. The other one uh, that we looked at is who is this restrainer? In verses 6 and 7, let's look at it briefly. And you know what restrains him now. Who's him? It's Antichrist. You know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now I gave you a whole list of theories that theologians have come up with throughout the years and you know everything from the Roman uh, Empire, the uh, civil government, the presence of the church, the Holy Spirit is probably the most popular one amongst dispensationals uh, today. Where the problem lies is in verse 6, it's neuter, it's, it's what restrains. In verse 7, it's he. So you, you don't have agreement there. Um, and so the idea that it's the Holy Spirit and then also that he's taken out of the way, how can God in any way be taken out of the way? So I gave you the whole list of different theories, and I like Augustine's the best, when Augustine, from 1,600 years ago, says, Frankly, I confess, I do not know what it means. And I would like to put myself there, but I do have a, a theory of what it means, and I'll tell you what I told you last week. I think that we can be sure... Whatever it is, it is certainly under God's complete sovereign control, whether it's an angelic force in conjunction with civil governments, in conjunction with the presence of the church, the advancing of the gospel, souls being saved and conquered and coming to Christ. It could be a combination of these things, but it's most certainly under God's sovereign control. The important thing is this. We don't have to discover what this, who this is. It's, the important thing is that it is God who is the one whose timetable is being fulfilled. He determines when the restraint is lifted. He determines when Antichrist will be revealed in full measure. He is the one that is in control of this. Satan, make no mistake about it, Satan has no power as to when this figure, which will be one that is inspired of Satan, will be revealed. We know that when such a time comes, God will be in control, and it is on His timetable. We've also looked at the many manifestations of apostasy that we have all around us today, and the various denominations as they're going very liberal and ordaining homosexuals and, and all of these things. And I told you last week about Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda, the guy in Latin America who has tens of thousands of followers, raises millions and millions of dollars, and claims to be Jesus Christ. Now he denies the deity of Christ, or he denies, what is it? He denies a whole series of fundamentals of the faith, but yet he claims to be Christ. So antichrists are here and among us. Whether it is the antichrist, uh, we do not know. And we need not speculate about that. So tonight, with God's help, we're going to look at verses 8 to 12 in this passage, chapter 2. And as Antichrist comes up in the midst of what I believe to be the church, in the midst of the temple, in the midst of the church, and causes it to become predominantly apostate, it paves the way for God to send this deluding influence, which we'll see in our text tonight, and it paves the way for judgment, as it would cause them to reject the truth and to embrace Satan's lie and worship Antichrist. So tonight we have two main thoughts. And the verses where I'm breaking them are right down the middle in verse, verse 8, 9, and 10 and a half, 10a, and then 10b, 11, 
and 12. So first of all, the deception and destruction of Antichrist, verse 8 to 10a. And then verse 10b to 12, the great deception is followed by God's final judgment against his enemies. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and read the text, beginning in verse 8. Follow along with me. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan and with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send a deluding influence so that they believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Amen. So first of all, verse 8 to 10a, the deception and destruction of Antichrist. It says here that this lawless one will be revealed. That's, it's, it's, the, it's the word of the unveiling that we looked at in uh, referring to Christ in chapter 1 in verse 8, when Christ will be unveiled. And... It, 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 notice it says, then. Then the lawless one will be revealed. When? Well, we go back to verses 6 and 7, which we just read. When this restrainer is removed, then the lawless one will be unveiled and will be revealed for all to see him. I want you to notice in verse 8, and this is very important as to what your millennial view is theologically. In verse 8 it says, then the lawless one will be revealed and notice, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Paul does not even take a moment to say how long he will be revealed, but as soon as he is revealed, he will be slain and brought to an end, immediately and completely defeated when the Lord appears. Do you see that? It's the unveiling of, of, of Antichrist here, but then also the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth at the Lord's appearing and coming. And this word to bring to an end means to abolish or to destroy, to render inactive or to put an end to. One of its meanings is, is as destruction by replacement, which kind of fits. It's bringing an end to Antichrist and Christ coming to take the preeminence. It's very interesting in the NAS how it says it's, it's with the breath of his mouth. Just think about that for a moment. As the Lord Jesus Christ would appear and as he would come, it's with the mere breath of his mouth. This is no conflict among equals, brethren. Do you see this? This is not some duel that goes on for weeks or months or days or years or whatever you think. This is not a conflict among equals. For when the Lord comes, he instantly slays Satan's agents. And it's interesting that Antichrist is the one who is giving all the blasphemes, right? Blaspheming God. Revelation 7, the, or 13, the beast. And, and here where he sees all these arrogant boasts, right? And so it's the very breath of Christ's mouth 
that silences the mouthpiece that is blaspheming Almighty God. He is abolished of all of his power. One commentator said, It is fitting that the breath of his mouth should be the terrible weapon which Christ uses to forever silence this blasphemous assumer by divine, of divine prerogative. So it's at the very appearing of Christ when he comes, and this word is epiphania in the original, bring to an end by the epiphania of his parousia. Okay, those two words connected right there at the end of the verse. And we've been looking at the, the, the parousia, right? The coming of the Lord four times First Thessalonians. Three times here, twice referring to Christ in Second Thessalonians. This is that powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes bodily, he comes physically, he comes so that every eye will see, the sky will be rolled back as a scroll, and he comes in power to judge his enemies and to bring relief and rest to the righteous. And so it says at the very appearing, at the appearance of the Son of God, an epiphany, you've probably heard that word. It's the idea of referring to splendor. The Greeks used it of the glorious manifestation of the gods. But Paul uses it exclusively referring to Christ coming. He uses it five times in the pastoral epistles, besides here, and that's the only places he uses it. But in the pastoral epistles, first it refers, once it refers to his first advent, four times to the second coming of Christ. For example, Titus 2.13 looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the nuance here that is striking, it's striking because it's the lawless one that is being unveiled, that's being revealed. Apocalypse is the original, it's that, that word. And at the unveiling of the lawless one, at the same time, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the very breath of his mouth, at his appearing and at his coming, will bring to an end Antichrist. Make no mistake about it, he will be utterly destroyed at that time. And I think Paul uses these words, he's grasping for words, the, the appearance and, and the coming of Christ, and knitting them together to emphasize the re- resistless, re- resistless power of Antichrist to fight against this one that is coming, the Son of God. Antichrist will have nothing, he has no power whatsoever when it comes to the Son of God being appearing in his presence. He's unable to do anything. So what a wonderful picture of powerful deity, a wonderful picture of the gloriousness of the Lord Jesus Christ coming with almighty power to destroy Satan's mouthpiece here at the end of time. Think of Christ in that glorious picture, Him with eyes as a flame of fire. This is the one that will come in the end, the one who can see the thoughts and intents of man's heart, and the one that certainly knows and has even ordained Antichrist to come on the scene for this very, very short season. Well, let's look a little bit more about the nature of Antichrist. In verse 9 and 10, Antichrist comes with what? Deceptive signs. And he comes in the, with the accord of the work of Satan. Now it's very interesting here that in verse 9 he says, the one who's coming is in accord 
with the activity of Satan. That's the only time parousia actually refers to Antichrist. It always refers to Christ's second coming, when he's coming to earth. But here, it refers to Antichrist, to even this, this pseudo-coming, this, this uh, you, know, mock, you know, how he's mocking Christ. He wants to be worshipped as Christ. He wants to be treated as God. He stands in the place of, of God and demanding worship, and even his coming is a mockery or, or a, uh, a pseudo-coming because it's in accord with the activity of Satan. Now this phrase here, uh, with the activity of Satan, um, literally means a powerful work in action. And God has used signs and wonders throughout the ages to authenticate his messengers, right? To authenticate the Messiah during his earthly ministry on earth, to authenticate the apostolic ministry through the book of Acts, as we see uh, the various signs and wonders performed. You could go back to the prophets even before that. But God uses these things to authenticate that these are indeed God's servants whom he is sending. Acts 2.22 God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Hebrews 2 also God also testifying with them by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. These are signs and wonders authenticated by God himself set forth as being coming from him and authenticating the work of these men. Now, look at verse 9. His coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power signs and false wonders. There again, the pseudo-wonders, the pseudo-signs that, 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 that come from Antichrist. He's the arch-deceiver. He works signs and wonders after the pattern of Satan's working by way of falsehood. Christ would speak of Satan, at least, at length, as, as he is the father of lies. And so, too, Antichrist is the great deceiver. He leads many astray. And make no mistake about it, there is a measure of real supernatural power that Antichrist has. A measure of real supernatural power that Satan has that he gives to Antichrist, and ultimately that comes from our sovereign God. Do you remember in Exodus, when Moses and Aaron are going before Pharaoh, let my people go, and Moses throws his staff down, turns the Nile into blood, what what did the magicians do? They copied... The, all, the, all the things that they were doing, they copied. And in Exodus 7.22, it says, But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, it's a fascinating study next time you're reading Exodus. Just underline every time Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He hardens his own heart. He hardens his own heart. God hardens his heart. He hardens his heart. God hardens the heart. God hardens the heart. We're going to get into a little bit of that in Romans 1 in a minute. But look at that again. And, and this is all under God's um, his, his sovereign control and for his sovereign purposes to bring about judgment in the case, and this would be the, the case of Egypt and Pharaoh. So Antichrist, his purpose is to entice people, to trick people, to accept him as being divine, to accept him as really being the one from Almighty God. It's much like the false prophet entices people to worship the beast by making fire to come down out of heaven. We see that in Revelation. 
And Antichrist has many followers. This is not just some person in Latin America, like the Jose Miranda story that I read last week, that has a, a regional following. This, this is somebody who has a worldwide following. There is great rejection of the truth. It says in verse 10, with all deception, or with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. In verse 12 also, that they may be judged who did not what? Believe the truth. So they're rejecting the truth. Antichrist deceives them into rejecting the truth. And he has many followers. And his coming, when Jesus Christ comes, it will separate the sheep from the goats. The elect will not be led astray by Antichrist. Christ said in Matthew 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show what? Great signs and wonders. Wonderful signs that will dupe the masses. Great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. But implied here, what he's saying is that the elect will not be misled. And that should bring comfort to your hearts because we live in days of deception. So Antichrist comes with all power and signs and wonders. What kind of signs and wonders do we see in our day? Well, there's several different things. It depends on what network you turn on, what channel, what country you look into. If you look into Africa, there's still lots of mysticism, of of the uh, magical arts and so forth. Uh, Turn on TBN and you you see the various people who are healing, um, healing those who walk down the aisle or who are in a wheelchair and be healed or slain in the spirit. All of this kind of things, false wonders. Maybe one of them really has a pain go away, really has something here. You know, again, uh, under God's sovereign providence. Probably the, the largest one that comes to my mind is the Roman Catholic Church. How many signs and wonders have they claimed throughout the centuries? There have been countless signs and wonders. Search sometime on on uh, the, these, these wonders, these, these appearances of Mary and the appearances of, of, of a crucifix, these apparitions of Mary. I found one website that actually has a list of apparitions of Mary from A.D. 40 all the way up to the present. Countless times, various times where they think Mary has come and shown herself. Or there's another site that only has the 20th century documented and there's been over a hundred apparitions of Mary or a bleeding crucifix in the last hundred years alone. And we usually disregard these. You hear about a bleeding crucifix in some cathedral and some dead church in Europe and we think somebody's been rubbing their eyes too hard or somebody took too much Valium or whatever. We shouldn't disregard these things a hundred percent. Because Antichrist, even as the Antichrist may not have come, but many Antichrists are certainly here in the same way. There are some deception of power and false wonders and signs that will be present with this. I don't think we should disregard it right away. A weeping picture of Mary was one of them. And these things may well happen, but it is certainly not from God. It's under God's sovereign control. He allows enough power, enough um, power to, to, for that to happen so that Satan could um, 
present these things to people and deceive. Deception. Deceive. Remember he said in verse 3, let no one deceive you. Christ, Matthew 24, let no one deceive you. That's the purpose of all of this, is that God's people would be deceived and that those who are not his people would ultimately be deceived. I like what John Piper says regarding these various signs, whether it's Roman Catholic Church or anything. Just think of any type of sign whatsoever. Never allow any sign to be the ground of your faith. Rather, these should point to Christ. Any sign whatsoever that you may experience or reflect on from your past, you have to ask yourself the question, does this or did that point to the Lord Jesus Christ? Did it magnify Christ in His Word? Because what do false signs do? They point away from Christ most often. They point away from the true God. They point away from the final revelation of the Word of God that we have set before us. And they set us off on little tangents looking for this and that. So ask yourself that next time. And now notice, here in verse 10 it says, And with all deception of wickedness, Paul's just grasping for words, stacking words on top of each other here, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Those who perish. What, what, that should remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Who is it that perishes there? For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. And it's interesting, in this very passage, down in verse 21, I'll just read it. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for what? Signs. They ask for signs. And Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ and Him crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He goes on to say, consider your calling, brethren. Remember your calling. We looked at that passage some weeks ago. Also, Deuteronomy chapter 13. I don't think I'm going to turn there, but... That's the passage that talks about how you can see a false prophet. Maybe I'll just read one verse. You can write it down and look at it later. Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 to 5. He says, If a prophet or a dreamer arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, the very thing what we're looking at here, and the sign or wonder comes true, okay, for those magicians, they came true, right? If it comes true, which he spoke to you, concerning which he spoke to you, and then he says, Let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of this prophet, and it goes on to say, You should stone such a prophet. So the same way, as Antichrist would arise, as the false prophet would arise, all of these things, they're pointing away saying, let us not go to the God of the Bible. Let us go to Antichrist and worship Him who has elevated Himself. We know 
that the end is near. Deuteronomy 13:1-5. And one example of that that I saw in the news two days ago is that Catholic churches in the Netherlands, at least a Dutch bishop has said that the Catholic churches in the Netherlands is, is commanding all of their church members to pray to Allah rather than God for the sake of peace with the Muslims. Now isn't that a noble thing? The guy just wants peace. Isn't that a noble thing? He's commanding who knows how many followers to pray to another God. Does that fit with Deuteronomy 13? I think it does, somewhat. It certainly fits with the great deception and the apostasy, and just add that to the several examples that we've already talked about, of denomination after denomination, denying the deity of Christ, denying um, the, the Word of God, denying the clear teachings of Scripture, and allowing perversion, not only into its churches, but into its leadership. And God is not pleased with that. Well, we've seen the deception that Antichrist brings and his ultimate destruction now, this great deception, is followed by final judgment of his enemies. Look in verse 10, B and 11. It says, Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they may believe what is false. God sends this deception on those who reject the truth. And the notion that God simply permits evil to exist is wrong. It is very clear in the Word of God. For this reason, God will send. God is the one who sends it. It indicates a positive personal act by God Himself. And this is amazing because we expect this delusion at this point to come from Satan and not from God. But this part, at this point, the deception comes, the, 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 the uh, deluding influence ultimately comes from God. And this is amazing. And the Bible reveals several things about the sovereignty of God and unexpected things that we have to sometimes scratch our head about. But this is one of them. Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at it in a moment. I should have had that up earlier. But the idea where he gives them over, he gives them over again and again. That's the idea here, is that he sends upon them a deluding influence. But the Bible reveals things about the sovereignty of God, such as 1 Kings 22, where it says, God is said to put a deceiving spirit in the mouths of the false prophets. Okay, Psalm 76, he makes the wrath of man to praise him. God's sovereign hand is in the process of leading these sinners to ultimately receive recompense for their sins. Now this phrase, the love of the truth in verse 10, only occurs here in the Bible uh, together, but it shows that these followers, that these who perish in the deception of wickedness, it shows their, their apathy to the truth. They've rejected the truth. They have indifference to the truth. They're those who Jesus says they love darkness rather than light. They love darkness rather than light. They lack a commitment to the truth of the Word of God. And they have given in to accept and embrace completely a lie. And so in verse 11 where it says, For this reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so as to be saved, for this reason, God 
sends this upon them, this diluting influence, and it's energia playa in the original. It's a powerful action of error. A powerful action of error God sends upon them. The phrase means more than an indifference to evil, but it's an active promotion of evil. I mentioned to a couple of you a week ago Friday night, we happened to flip on Larry King live. I'm not sure why, but it happened. In God's providence, uh, we don't typically look at that. But there was a, a whole panel discussion of the transgender group of people, okay? And all of these people who have had transgender operations. Some of them look like they missed a few steps somewhere, if you know what I mean. But the, what I'm bringing this up for is, is this, this absolute perversion is being propagated as reality. And you've got medical professionals on there standing there and just saying that, that this, some people just really are really a girl inside, even no matter what's in between the legs. That's what they say. Something happened in mommy's tummy, a little bump here, and whoop, you think you're the opposite sex. And of course, CNN and the liberal stance that they have decides to take a poll. And do you know the results of this poll? How many people wish they were the opposite sex? 25%. My goodness. Well, maybe what they're saying is true. Well, it's the idea here that, that, that God gives them over this deluding influence so that they believe a lie. They will believe what is false, and how many have fallen into that? That's just one little tiny micro-example of a myriad of things in which deception is all around us. Our holy God, who is righteous, sends this deluding influence because it pays the way for His righteous judgment that we spent a few weeks on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when He will deal out retribution on those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. This is the very beginning of judgment. When God gives you over, when you believe this deluding influence, judgment has begun. Would you agree? That's the beginning of judgment. I've already mentioned the example of Pharaoh's heart. We won't turn to the parable of the sower in Matthew 13 for the sake of time, but again, there's a quote from Isaiah chapter 6 there, and it's, the blind who do not believe and do not perceive with their eyes and their ears are confirmed in their choice. Let's read verse 15. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears they and with their ears they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes, otherwise they would see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I should heal them. That they become dull and God gives them over. And remember the commissioning of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, that you keep preaching, but they're not going to believe. They're not going to perceive. They're not going to turn. So verse 12, God's judgment will be poured out on his enemies who hate the truth. It says, in order that, okay, that's our purpose clause here. It's got a preliminary purpose clause, the universe 11, so that they will believe what is false. But here, in order that, the Hena clause, they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure and wickedness. So that they may be judged. This is a picture of God's righteous judgment upon these wicked because they took pleasure and wickedness. The first catechism question is, what is the chief end of man that we would glorify God and enjoy Him forever? 
But these have said that, that I please myself and I enjoy, my, I, I add to myself all that I can in this life and I neglect God. God sends judgment upon them. Listen to Leon Morris. He says, God brings them to their own condemnation by their acceptance of the lie. They think this acceptance is the end of the story, but it is not. In the purposes of God, it leads them to condemnation. In God's sovereign purposes, this deluding influence that comes upon them leads to their condemnation. Just go to Romans chapter 1. It talks about these who professed to be wise, they became fools, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now notice three times, 24, 26, and 28. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, men abandoned their natural function of the woman and burned in desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The transgender thing I just mentioned right there clearly set forth. Verse 28, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. You can read the rest later. Being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, and the list goes on. What a frightening thing it is when we see those around us who have hardened their hearts so much to where God gives them over. Now, is there a way that we can know who these people are? Do they have a purple dot in the middle of their back? No. We still preach the gospel to every creature. No matter how perverted, we will preach the gospel as, as, as we have opportunity. Well, let's draw some concluding applications tonight. We've seen these simple two points, the deception and destruction of Antichrist, and then the God's final judgment to them. What a terrible end it is to those who do not know God. This is altogether frightening. Look in chapter 1, where it says, When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Verse 8, Dealing out retribution on those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay what? The penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. You see, if you're trusting in your own works, if you're trusting and thinking that you're a good person and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, you're rejecting His Word, you're rejecting the person of Christ, you're rejecting His cross, the necessity of an atonement for unworthy sinners, you will be among these people here and you will be recipients of recompense from a divine and holy God. Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for unworthy sinners. He donned human flesh. He lived the perfect life. He went to the cross. He, he suffered hell on the cross for all of His elect people. That if we believe and we trust in the work of what Christ has done, not our list of all of our good deeds, but what Christ has done, we will be saved. 
Yes, the believer then performs deeds unto righteousness, deeds prepared from before the foundation of the world, but they add no merit whatsoever in our acceptance before a holy God. Look in verse 13, a little sneak peek at next week. After this terrible, dreadful section of the correction of the timing of the day of the Lord, the apostasy and the nature of Antichrist and this deluding influence, look at what he says to this young church whom he has so much love and affection for. But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren, beloved by the Lord, because what God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And we're going to look at that more next week. But, but Paul is saying, this, all of this what I've been saying, all of this what I'm saying, I don't think you're in that group. But to you, we give thanks to God because God has genuinely worked in your hearts. You will not be deceived. So, simple application for us, brethren, from verses 8 to 12. We need to have a love for the truth. Have a love for this book, the Word of God. Have a love for doctrinal truth. As you hear it proclaimed, as you hear it taught in Bible studies and preaching, love the truth. And don't be deceived. Learn and study the truth so that you will not be easily deceived. Cherish the Word of God. And be discerning concerning any signs or wonders that may come your way. Be discerning the next time you hear that. Search the scriptures. And I think this is big. We need to find our delight in God, not in the things of this world. As we find our delight in God, as we find our delight in knowing and loving and serving and praying and and, and, and our union with Christ, it will ensure us that we're not deceived. Don't allow yourself to be swept away with the date setting and all the figuring out and turning the letters upside down and seeing if we can come up with any numbers. Don't be swept away with that. Be ready today with how you're living because Jesus Christ is coming again. The teaching of Scripture is that He is coming like a thief in the night, Paul said in his first letter to this church. And so we are to be ready one theologian that taught at Westminster, Voss, said this, 2 Thessalonians 2 belongs among the prophecies whose best and final exegete will be the eschatological fulfillment itself. In other words, we don't know exactly how it's all going to unfold and we can't make it squeaky clean and, and explain every single word. But even great theologians have said, like Augustine, I don't know what the restrainer means. Voss here that the best and final exegete will be how it plays out, a pandemonious. So the important thing for us, brethren, is to be ready. Be ready. And thankfully, God has given us a, a means in which we can uh, remember again and again the fundamental um, truths of the gospel and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and it's our great privilege at Grace Bible Church to practice this every week. So let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we bless you and thank you for the teaching of your word. Lord, it is sometimes exhausting to go through such passages as this. 